I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2006. Enjoy. I could hardly put down a remarkable new book which I have been reading called Miracles on the Water, The Heroic Survivors of a World War II U-Boat Attack. And this is a story which uh, I had never heard anything at all about. And I know something about the Second World War. And I've talked to several people who uh, thought they really knew this period quite thoroughly. And yet one way or another had somehow not come to know this remarkable story of tragedy and courage. Uh, the story is told beautifully by Tom Nagorski, senior broadcast producer for ABC's World News Tonight. And uh, the book, Miracles on the Water, is published by Hyperion. And Tom Nagorski, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the, the personal way in which this story intersects with your own life and how you came to know about this remarkable moment in history. Well, it, it began as a family story for me, oddly enough. I was, uh, uh, I was probably, uh, oh, a young teenager maybe when I first heard about it via my great-uncle, who was uh, at the time a man in his, um, in his early 80s, uh, and, and I knew vaguely through him uh, that he'd been at sea, uh, had a, a, a horrible ordeal at sea, he'd been on a ship that was sunk and then left uh, out on a lifeboat and given up for dead, um, along with a great many other people who were in his boat. And, and the punchline to that story uh, uh, was that he'd come back alive to find his own obituary in, in several newspapers, and, uh, and the same went for, for his uh, fellow passengers. What I never knew at the time when I was young was that uh, my great-uncle's story really, uh, the, the larger tapestry version of it, involved uh, a large group of children who had been on that same ship, who were part of an evacuation program for, for kids uh, uh, leaving England uh, as the war um, became uh, tougher and the bombardment of, uh, of London and other cities uh, intensified in the summer and fall of 1940. You said that uh, the story, as it, as it came to you early on when you were still a teenager, came to you in patchy fashion snippets tossed across the dinner table. And we can well imagine how a story like this would not really fully sink in, I mean, just how important it was, what a momentous experience this was uh, uh, for your uncle. You're fortunate, of course, to have had the experience of, of in a sense, sort of rescuing from a, a sort of oblivion uh, many of the remarkable details about this story. Tell us how much or how thoroughly this story has been told before now uh, and, and how you went about finding out still more about exactly what happened. Well, the first thing I did would answer both your questions. The first thing I did was go uh, uh, back into the archives and find newspaper accounts at the time, some of which my great-uncle's uh, daughters, who were still living today, um, had uh, tucked away. And you can see that at the time, this is September 1940, it was a huge story. It was front-page news not only in England, um, in Canada, where those kids were, uh, that was their ultimate destination, and, uh, and in this country as well, front-page news in, in many of the major newspapers, uh, both when the uh, ship was torpedoed and then when uh, some of the remarkable uh, rescues were carried out, uh, which I write about in the book. But I think, uh, you know, back to your opening remarks about the war and how we can all feel, I certainly consider myself a pretty good amateur student of World War II. Um, you know, we have to understand that that conflict... Uh, 
lasting as long as it did, produced so many, I guess what you might call uh, small epics, if that's not a contradiction in terms, that, uh, um, you know, one after another. And, and perhaps that's why it stands to reason that, uh, that, that some of those, you know, remarkable stories that, that were sort of over um, uh, after a few weeks or a month, in this case, the the trauma and the drama that was described in those newspapers and by the survivors when they returned home, I think was probably eclipsed, uh, even in Great Britain and certainly in the rest of the world, as the war marched on, as the, uh, the you know, the, the battle lines shifted and and uh, there was so much else to, to, uh, to be concerned about, afraid of. Um, so, you know, you will find uh, stories like this that uh, were... were were enormously impactful at the time and then just uh, uh, drifted off, I suppose, for whatever reason. Hmm. Although, you know, one would think it would almost take something like a world war to uh, erase the the impact of a story as powerful as this one. Right. Uh, We're speaking with Tom Nagorski about his book, Miracles on the Water. I appreciate the fact that in your book you take plenty of time to set the context of British families deciding to send their children off to the presumed safety of Canada. Uh, And you you really help us understand what drove some British families to do this and what a wrenching decision uh, it was. Uh, That's a powerful story in and of itself. It makes us wonder what each of us would do uh, were we placed in the same awful situation. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And wrenching is the word. I mean, I... uh um, before one gets to the stories of what actually happened out on the water, uh, you know, you can't help. I'm a parent of two young children, and you can't help but at least attempt to imagine yourself into the, in, in those circumstances, even if, if you can't really. Um, and uh, the, the choice was stark and, and in a way simple. Hmm. Do, you, do you keep your family together, as we probably most of us would be inclined to do, um, even as the, the bombing intensifies? And uh, really, as, as a sort of uh, uh, the aerial bombardment produced, as we know, uh, a, a reign of terror at that per- period in, in Great Britain. Uh, and in some cases, you had people whose homes uh, or, or whose neighbors' homes had actually been flat out destroyed. Uh, do, do you wait that out or attempt to wait it out uh, as a family unit? Or do you take the government up on, on, on an offer to send your children? They had to be between the ages of 5 and 15 uh, to presumed safety to another country where families were uh, uh, were waiting and willing to take them in, but you didn't know very much about those families. In some cases, you didn't even know what city they'd wind up in. Um, and it was for, you know, quote-unquote, the duration of the war. And uh, as we, we know, the you know, at that point, um, even Winston Churchill couldn't guess uh, what that time frame might really involve. So a terribly stark decision. We do know that thousands of uh, British families uh, uh, took the government up on the offer and sent their boys and girls off on these ships uh, to other lands. Hmm. You mentioned at one point that that part of the reason for this was the idea that uh, this would somehow be for the good of the nation. I mean, not just for the sake of the safety of the children, but to help preserve a better future for England by uh, not right. allowing too many of its young people to, to perish. I love, however, the, the, the uh, statement you quote from an author named Elsbeth Huxley, 
when she writes, uh, security for the young and helpless was measured against the scars which flight from danger might have upon their minds and against the bereavement which parents would suffer with their children gone. Yeah, well, I use that quote because sometimes, you know, your own words can't really measure up to what someone else wrote at the time, and and she put it very, very well. Um, uh, it was a very controversial thing, mind you, the, uh, uh, the, the, the opinion you cite that... Uh, it was for the good of the nation to safeguard these children. Sounds eminently reasonable. And then you hear what, what uh, Winston Churchill had to say about it. Um, uh, and he was, uh, uh, to the extent we know, he was, he was fairly vigilant in his opposition to this idea initially. He felt it sent a terrible message, uh, I guess propaganda-wise, for lack of a better word, uh, to, the, to the country and to the rest of the world and to the Germans. Uh, because it, it, you know, you would have uh, unavoidably pictures of uh, of children lined up on ships fleeing the country, and even if they all had smiles on their faces, stiff upper lip, and all the rest, it looked like defeatism to him. Hmm. And uh, uh, he thought it showed no spine, no backbone, and it was better. Um, he felt to uh, uh, to try to encourage families to keep their their children in the country. In uh in the end, for this uh, ship called the City of Benares, 90 such children went aboard, along with uh, uh, a number of, of regular paying passengers and, of course, crew as well, for a total of, I think, just over 400 That's right. aboard, this, aboard this ship. And uh, the City of Benares was not alone. It traveled in a convoy. Help our listeners explain the convoy system and how in a sense it 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 failed the passengers of the city of Benares at least well, well the convoys um, had been put in place they're actually an old naval tradition but but uh the the British had begun using them um anytime really any liners of any significance left a British port uh for protection and the general rule was you uh you clumped a, a bunch of uh uh smaller and larger craft together and uh, once you set them up, you uh, gave them the protection of usually a British destroyer, a Royal Navy uh, vessel out front, with a couple of smaller, uh, in this case what they called uh, corvettes, uh, smaller uh, Royal Navy vessels, and sometimes some aerial cover as well. And it was a deterrent. Uh, those uh, The destroyers could scan for submarines. They could also drop depth charges uh, uh, to repel submarines. And it was uh, it was the way you you felt you gave some clearance and safety to uh, to ships that were moving out. I should also say for for your listeners that a reminder that at the time uh, Hitler's submarine war against uh, Great Britain, um, his uh, effort to enforce a full naval blockade was uh, in in full gear. Uh, they'd sunk a whole bunch of ships that summer, so this convoy system was was deemed necessary. And, and as to how it failed in this case. Um, this convoy, which uh, which the ship carrying the children was at the lead of, uh, was escorted by the Royal Navy about 500 miles uh, out into the North Atlantic, and um, that was deemed to be the point at which they, there was smooth sailing, so to speak, that uh, the submarines weren't operating that far out. And that was uh, that was as I lay out in the book. That was a terribly uh, bad assumption, a miscalculation. They were going further than that. And about 130 miles further out, with the with the escort gone, uh, the city of Benares was torpedoed in the middle of the night. Hmm. And uh, and at that moment, utterly alone. We should mention also the fact that uh, even if it had been torpedoed with those convoy vessels around them, 
The convoy ships were shields and nothing more. In fact, those ships' captains were under strict orders not to attempt rescue unless an attacking U-boat had been chased away or destroyed. That's right. There, there's a fish-in-a-barrel uh, quality to this. That you, uh, um, uh, submarines were known if they found uh, liners without any cover. Uh, they'd just go for everything that was out there. And indeed, they actually hit another one nearby. So. Hmm. Uh, the impact of those torpedoes on, or it's actually one torpedo. I think you tell us of two por- torpedoes being fired and missing. That's correct. And then a, a third torpedo, which hits the target perfectly. And, uh, of course, a few people uh, were probably instantly killed in that, in that impact or shortly thereafter. What is really quite extraordinary is uh, what occurs with some of the lifeboats being deployed, the lowering of the lifeboats or the landing of the boats. Uh, this is something we just don't stop to think about, about, as you say, the great skill and, and good fortune, even on a sunny day to successfully deploy a lifeboat, let alone uh, on stormy seas in, in, in this kind of chaos. Tell us just a bit about what occurred in these awful moments as the lifeboats were first deployed. Yeah, well, um, as somebody said to me the other day who just finished the book, it's sort of the opposite problems that, uh, uh, that the Titanic faced, if you will, where there was all sorts of... Uh, I think human error uh, cited and uh, frigid water and all all the like. Here you had a, a ship that went down so fast. It's 31 minutes from torpedoes impact to sinking. Um, it was listing or uh, or you know bent, if you will, almost uh, within minutes of of the uh, of the torpedoes impact. And what you had were lifeboats that, uh, although they'd done the drills uh, uh, almost every day that they'd been out on the water. Uh, as you say, the, the, the task of lowering a boat, a lifeboat, when the ship is slanted that way, in, in, in this case there were heavy winds as well, is, is extremely difficult. And you have to, the, the best explanation I was given, and I, I use it in the book, is, is like trying to sort out a, uh, a very clunky set of Venetian blinds that won't level off. Because if you do it, if you lower the boat level with the ship, you're going to be tilted just like the ship is, and you're not going to come down cleanly. And boat after boat was hampered by, uh, by this, by the fact that waves uh, threw more water into the boat. And so from the get-go, and we're talking 10.30 at night when the ship sinks, um, you had a dozen lifeboats deployed to the water in, uh, uh, in some cases, very, very compromised positions with lots of, uh, lots of them were waterlogged. A couple of them actually flipped. Um, so it was in, in, in that surrounding, if you will, um, and the, uh, that, that this uh, ordeal began, and it's it's really why uh, the survival of any of those people is is, is such a miracle. Hmm. Especially tragic is what occurs with lifeboat eight, which uh, ends up in this chaos, dropping to a near vertical position, pitching more than thirty people and most of them children into the water. Early in the book, we are told the story of the Grimmond family. Uh, we're, we're even shown a photograph of them picking through the rubble of their home, which had been destroyed uh, in, a, in a German attack. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, three of those Grimmen children were in this ill-fated eighth lifeboat. You say, in a single week, the Grimmen children had lost their home, raced to enlist in the evacuee program, traveled at the last minute to Liverpool, and won the admiration of children and adults alike on board the Benares. Gussie Grimmond 
had charmed virtually everyone she met in that short eventful time. Now, in a few awful moments, Gussie, Constance, and Violet Grimmond had been thrown into the North Atlantic and washed away. And not just them. Others suffered a similar yeah. terrible fate. Yeah, I mean, I must tell you that uh, uh, at the outset, I, I, I wrote this book primarily because I was so inspired by the, uh, by the bravery of children and, and the courage and discipline shown by those who survived. Um, but uh, there are some, uh, uh, and you've just described perhaps the most profound of them, uh, you know, some terribly tragic stories. And in particular, here were, when we get back to the wrenching choice that families had made, um, this was a family that had, uh, uh, had, had decided to send all its children who were of the eligible age uh, on this ship and who had had, you know, done so for a very understandable reason. Their house had been blown to bits in, in, uh, in the outskirts of London. And so um, it, it's a, it was a particularly tough thing to, uh, to read about, uh, to write about. I should tell you that some of the surviving siblings uh, uh, of that family are still around today, and, um, and it's a wrenching thing for them to relive. Uh, uh, some of them were too young to really understand it at the time. Hmm. This is a story of, of, as you just said, remarkable courage and ingenuity and valor and compassion and generosity. And one of the most stirring figures of all is uh, one of the adult escorts for these children, uh, someone by the name of Michael Rennie. Mm. Just tell our listeners a little bit about Michael Rennie and, uh, and why he shines so radiantly in the midst of this story. Well, Michael Rennie was a... Um uh, uh, by all accounts, a, a very gifted student, athlete. He was a rugby star in England. Um, he was in his early 20s. He was one of a small group of, uh, of escorts for the children. Uh, uh, these were uh, young men and women who were volunteers, basically, to uh, be in charge of a group of, uh, of boys or girls. And uh, Rennie was, uh, was universally loved, it seemed, by the children there. At any rate, he... Uh, uh, was in uh, again one of the the more compromised lifeboats, um, and uh, compromise is an understatement. Several of those kids uh, in the boat were thrown to the water, um, and uh, Michael Rennie, who was a very physically strong uh, young guy, uh, just started diving to the water. Uh, a few people, including crew members, had tried to just sort of reach over the lifeboat and 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 bring uh, uh, people who were in the water into the boat, he, he, was, uh, um, he was too impatient and, and too afraid that they were going to lose these kids. And one by one, he just starts diving, swimming, getting a child, bringing them back. Sees another, dives, heads out, finds a child, brings them back. And, and you know, I, it's very difficult to imagine, uh, but I know that, the, you know, the waters were, were rough, uh, these are, are lifeboats with with sturdy and and tall uh, uh, sides to them. Just to, you know, to to climb back in, much less raise a, a child uh, over the side, is no small feat. He did this by all accounts about a dozen times. Um, and uh, one of the most stirring things I, I found in my research was uh, I visited a church uh, on the outskirts of London, where Michael Rennie's father was the vicar, and uh, where there is. Uh, in a corner over an altar, a, uh, a lovely small mural um, painting that uh, is, uh, uh, depicts the scene that I've just described. 
Um, and uh, it's a tribute to Michael Rennie, who in the end did not make it himself. Among many other extraordinary stories of courage is that of two young uh, women, Bess Walder and Beth Cummings, who actually find themselves not in the relative safety of a lifeboat, but actually either clinging to a raft or an overturned boat or something like that. Yeah, no, their their lifeboat had flipped. And um, uh, these are, as I said, these are not small boats. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, but their, their boat flips. It's sitting there bobbing along. They and some of the other occupants uh, made their way back to the boat. They were absolutely unable to turn it back over. So uh, these two girls, they were 14 and 15 at the time, they climb onto the sides, uh, essentially getting their hands onto the keel, or the, the, the uh, sort of underbelly of the, uh, of the lifeboat, and they hang on. And uh, again, I won't spoil too much of the story, but they basically, uh, through physical fortitude and, uh, and, and actually an incredible amount of mental strength as well, uh, lasted uh, the better part of 18 hours. And the thing that was so extraordinary to me about them, and I should tell you, I guess I am spoiling part of the story, that Beth and Beth, I'm happy to report, are alive today. Um, they said uh, immediately after their rescue, and they still say the same today, that they survived because they saw the other one hanging on and they were afraid. If, if you know, Beth said, if I let go, I was convinced Beth would let go. Beth says, if I let go, I thought she would, because they just, you know, even as they were weary beyond belief and, and their hands, uh, this is now going, you know, later into the next day, their hands practically frozen to the keel, they almost would have been content to let go. They were about ready to give up themselves. But, they, you know, they each thought, if I let go, the other will go. Hmm. And that sort of um, selflessness and, and courage, just, you know, these are the kinds of things that inspired me. Uh, to write the book in the first place. Also, I think a remarkable moment in that story is early on when they realize that there are other passengers who were aboard that lifeboat who have also made their way but are on the other side and hidden from view save for their hands up on the keel. And uh, you talk of how Beth Cummings noticed one of those pairs of hands seemed to be kind of thin and elegant very slim fingers, so probably belonging to maybe an older woman. Right. And she saw uh, the jewels on her hands, one diamond ring in, in particular, small and dazzling and utterly out of place, it seemed, a bizarre glimmer of beauty amid the horror and the storm. And, of course, before too long, those hands disappear. And one by one, those passengers hanging for dear life on the other side can hang on no longer. Uh the story is also, uh, for one of the lifeboats, a much longer story than the others. And, uh, and we are brought into kind of the drama and almost the theater of how one maintains sanity uh, for days upon days upon days in the confines of a lifeboat. And it's remarkable how uh, one of the female escorts, a woman named Mary Cornish, who's, you know, by, by no means the standard sort of picture we have of a heroine... Right is so courageous in keeping up the spirits of, of the boys that are in her boat, and that they turn to things like song and storytelling uh, to, to maintain their grip on, on reality and their sanity. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just remarkable to think of what we turn to in our direst uh, moments of need. Yeah. 
she she basically uh, took the strategy that what these children in the boat would need was diversion, that the crewmen would take care of food and water to the extent they could. Uh, but you had, uh, in her case, six uh, young, energetic, uh, restless uh, English boys, and um, you know she just figured they're they're going to go mad if I don't uh, give them something to think about other than you know the barren uh, and 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 really miserable and and perhaps life-threatening situation that they're confronted with. She did a masterful job with that, and every one of those children credited her in a large way with uh, preserving both their sanity and in some way saving their lives. Hmm. And at one point uh, in the midst of all this, uh, I think it is your uncle who thinks to himself uh, in in the fact that they have preserved themselves for so long, we have done something remarkable. That is <laughs> certainly putting it putting it mildly. Yeah, and you know, he was a modest man. I knew him, uh, as I said at the outset, I, I knew him late in his life. Uh, he was certainly not one given to uh, anything approaching, you know, boastfulness. But uh, that's an understatement. He did something remarkable. Those kids did something. I certainly will never forget. And um, and almost everyone in their own way, whether it was outright acts of courage or just uh, smarts or just, in the case of the kids, keeping their composure and not panicking when you, you know, really the, the, the reaction you would have expected Hmm. would have been panic. Right. Well, and the fact that, at least in the early going of this ordeal, for many of the children, what seemed to power them was what you call uh, a stimulant. Their stimulant was the powerful pull of adventure. Sure. I mean, and of course, in this story is that element of adventure, awful though this adventure turned out to be. At the start of the book, two things are, are, are exceptionally remarkable. One of them is a map of the North Atlantic, where we see exactly that point in the ocean Mm -hmm. where the boat goes down. And that, in a nutshell, shows us the ordeal of these people so far from land. You also mentioned early on that a very good friend of yours offered you warm encouragement for the gathering of this story, someone named Peter Jennings. That's right. That's right. Uh, I'm talking to you actually just next door to his old office. He was a great friend and colleague, and and, uh, I showed him a book proposal. It goes back almost five years now. And uh, he gave me all sorts of edits, but, but uh, primarily he gave me great enthusiasm and encouragement. And he said, look, this is a great story. Now go and make a great book. Which you have uh, done. The book, again, is Miracles on the Water, the Heroic Survivors of a World War II U-Boat Attack, published by Hyperion. Its author, Tom Nagorski. Tom Nagorski, I thank you so much for writing this wonderful book and for talking about it today on The Morning Show. Best wishes to you. Thanks for having me, Greg.